All right, guys, let's look to the Lord and we'll get started tonight. Father, Psalm 119 tells us a lot of things, and one of the things it tells us is that uh, you are good and you do good. Uh, sometimes when things happen to us that uh, are disappointing, uh, we have setbacks, uh, we expect things to turn out a certain way and they don't. There are times when we're tempted to think that uh, you have uh, shorted us, that you have not been uh, uh, straight with us, that you have not been fair with us. But that is a wrong perspective. Uh, you are good and you do good. And Father, we thank you for the perspective that uh, nothing comes into our lives just by sheer chance or through accident or through fate, but that you are the God that controls all things and you are sovereign over the events of our lives and, and every circumstance. And uh, even the things that come into our lives that are disappointing, in some way, shape, or form, you intend those things for our good and for uh, our, our benefit. We don't always see that up front. Uh, sometimes that, that's, that's a hard thing to swallow. But, but, Father, we always have to return to your character and to who you are. Uh, tonight, Lord, as we uh, look into the scripture for a second time at this particular king, uh, open our eyes that we may behold wonderful things from thy, from thy law, from thy word. Uh, instruct us, Lord, in the way that we should walk. We're going to encounter situations later this week, uh, every guy in this room, that we don't have a clue about, that we know nothing about. I pray that tonight, as we look into the scriptures, that you might prepare us for what's ahead, uh, for what's coming over the next two, three days, over the next week, over the next two weeks. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you give us what we need when we don't even know that we need it. Thank you for your goodness and your su sufficiency and the preparation that you bring into our lives to get us ready for things that we're going to face that, uh, of which we have no idea this evening. So, Father, we, uh, we, we acknowledge our dependence on you. We, we acknowledge that we need your spirit to teach us. We ask that uh, we would have teachable hearts. We ask, Lord, that uh, we would be quick uh, to be obedient, that we would be quick to respond. We pray, Lord, that you'd give us insight uh, that that would not come just from uh, the normal process of reading the page, but that you would quicken our hearts and quicken our minds. I pray for the guys that are in difficult straits. I pray for the, for the guys that are hurting, and they're hurting deeply. Uh, they're they're face, facing pressures, uh, quite frankly, that are crushing them. And, and there have been times today when they've actually had pains in their chest. Not, not because there's, there's anything wrong with their cholesterol level or anything like that. It's not a physical issue. It's a stress issue. It's a pressure issue. And, and they're literally feeling it in the, in the ache of their, of, their, of their chest. Lord, uh, you're near to the brokenhearted, and you save those who are crushed in spirit. Encourage those men, I pray. Let them know that you're with them. Uh, let them know that you walk with them and that your eye is upon them. We want to learn from these kings. Uh, They're guys just like us. They had issues. They had, uh, they had hopes. They had dreams. They had aspirations. They had fears, just like us. 
Teach us from their lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Tonight is part two of uh, King Jehoshaphat. He, uh, he is one of the good guys in the line of kings that followed after um, Solomon. And if you recall, after Solomon, there were 40 kings, uh, 20 in the north, 20 in the south. Of those 40 kings, eight of them are called good. Jehoshaphat is one of the good guys, but he wasn't a perfect guy, uh, just like you, just like me. Uh, a, a guy that wanted to do what was right in the sight of the Lord, and the scriptures tell us that he did that. But as we look at his life, and there's quite a bit of content on this guy's life, so much so that we couldn't get it all in last week. So we're going to take another run at this guy and look at the, the kind of the second half of, of his life. Uh, his story is found in 2 Chronicles 19.1. Uh, it actually begins before then, but we're going to pick up where we left off last week in 2 Chronicles 19. We mentioned last week uh, there was a term, at least a term I've heard ever since I was a little kid, called Jumpin' Jehoshaphat. And I was, in, I was always intrigued by that and where that term came from. When you study this guy's life, when you study this guy's biography, he was considered a guy that had a heart for the Lord. But there was a period in his life where he jumped from doing good to doing what was wrong. Uh, we said last week that right out of the blocks when you read his life, it's mentioned that there were eight reasons that, that he did what was good in the sight of the Lord. But, but then he made a shift. And then what happened to this guy was that he got careless. He was doing real well. He was... Uh, he was running the race, and he was running the race, uh, he was running it well, but he got careless. Now, that's something that can happen to you, it can happen to me. Uh, we can get careless in our marriages. We can get careless at work, the quality of work that we do. Uh, we, can get, we can get careless uh, with finances. We can get careless with relationships. Uh, we, can, we, can get, we can get careless, um, well... It's always interesting to me how easy it is for me to be uh, for me to be nice and to be kind and for me to be understanding with guys here at church. You know what I'm talking about? I do all right at church, but 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 the real place of testing is being that way at home. See, I can get careless at home real easily. I can. Uh, I can be the toughest and most difficult with the people I love the most. And so can you. We get careless, don't we? Jumping Jehoshaphat. He was doing well, and then the sucker jumped. Jumped from doing what was right to doing what was wrong. Uh, if you back up in, in 2 Chronicles, you're at 19. But if you back up... Um, you look at, if you look at uh, 17, you see how well he did. Then you get to 18. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. And then there's, there, there's the change right there. Now Jehoshaphat had great riches and honor. And in my Bible, there's a semicolon. That's the dividing line. Right there is when he jumped. And he allied himself by marriage with Ahab. He was on a streak, he was doing what was right, he was following the Lord, but 
he started making some wrong choices because he got careless. So what did he do? Just to summarize from last week, he chose the wrong wife, not for himself, for his son. Uh, he, he chose the daughter of Ahab and Jezebel, worst couple in the history of Israel. And he got their daughter to marry his son. Secondly, uh, he got careless by choosing the wrong ally. He allied himself with Ahab in the north. Bad mistake. Uh, the scriptures, I think it's 1 Corinthians 15, 33, that says bad company corrupts good morals. Uh, so how do I relate to unbelievers? Well, you want to relate to them. Uh, their eyes have been blinded that they may not see the truth of the gospel. So you want to have a relationship with them. You know, a lot of times people come to Christ and we want to segregate ourselves and we want to separate ourselves. There are certain kinds of people uh, in the body of Christ uh, that uh, are pride themselves on their separation and they even have degrees of separation from the world. Uh, and so they never have contact with people that need Christ. That's not the way to do it. Uh, you, you want to have contact and you want to be, we're to be of the world. Is that what it says? We're to be in the world, but not of the world. So you got to have contact, you see. But what happens is, is when we allow people to begin influencing us. Uh, the story of Jehoshaphat is sort of tied up in, in Psalm 1, and I think we looked at that just briefly last week. But flip over there again. Because it kind of gives the general outline, not only of this guy's life, but of our lives. Um, in Psalm 1, it says, How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Now, it's one thing to be involved with people and to work with people that uh, do not know Christ. But it's another thing to walk in their counsel. You know, the Bible says in an abundance of counselors, there's victory. But you want to be listening to the right people. And in our study on Rehoboam and on Jeroboam, we saw that those guys listened to the wrong people. Uh, and, and this is what happened to, uh, uh, to Jehoshaphat because he allied himself with Ahab, wicked as king in the north. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Ahab was wicked. Nor stand in the path of sinners. Nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And otherwise, in other words, you don't give them a place of influence in your life. And then it goes on and says, here's the positive side uh, in, in uh, Psalm 1. It says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. When Jehoshaphat was in the word, and when he allowed the word to be in him, he did well. And he did what was right, and he did what was good. It was when he got out of the scriptures that he got himself in trouble. It was when the primary influence in his life um, was not the word of God, and became people that were going in the wrong direction. That's when this guy got in trouble. So he jumped. He jumped. Wrong wife, got the wrong ally, and as a result of getting the wrong ally, Ahab, he got involved in the wrong battle, and it almost cost him his life. Uh, that's when he jumped. There's a guy in Chicago whose life has radically changed in the last 24 hours. <laughs> I, mean, a sort, I mean, it's really kind of a sad situation, isn't it? This guy's life will never be the same. Ever. Uh, why? See, he walked into that game, Cubs fan. I mean, he had the headphones. He's listening to play-by-play. -play. How much did he pay for that seat? 
I mean, he was pumped. He was psyched. Uh, I, mean, I mean, they haven't been in the series in, what, 95 years? They're on their way. Three to nothing lead. I mean, you could sense it. You could feel it. It was happening. This was history in the making. And then this guy hits a foul ball. And you know what happened to this Cubs fan? He got careless. Now, now you know, I can't fault this guy. Because I've been at baseball games. And I'm telling you, if, uh, if a ball's coming my way, you know what I'm thinking about? I'm going to catch that ball. Um, uh, he did what you do. He did what I did. Only difference was he's sitting in a pretty strategic seat. Uh, when you're in a strategic seat, uh, you really need to think before you act. Now, if you're sitting 97 rows back, that's a whole different thing than sitting right at the wall, isn't it? See, he had a choice seat, and quite frankly, he knew he had a choice seat. But in the excitement and in the drama and in the impulse of the moment, he got careless and went to catch a ball. Well, you know the story. His life will never be the same. He walked in in his hat and his Cubs t-shirt and all that, and he walked out of there with a sweater over his head. Did you know that? And then they, uh, and, and people are threatening this guy. And they took him downstairs and they changed clothes and they put another hat on him and they put him out of back way. And, and today his name was revealed by certain uh, ethical journalists. <laughs> My gosh. <clears throat> I read he didn't go to work today. If they don't win tonight, he's not going to work tomorrow. I mean, you know, quite frankly, that guy may be finished in that town. His whole life will never be the same. Unbelievable. Now, you say it's just baseball. Man, it is. <clears throat> but my point is, he was in a very critical position, and he got careless. You're in a critical position. I'm in a critical position. You got a wife. You got kids. You're in a critical position, you see. And it's when we get careless that we get ourselves into big trouble. Uh, he picks the wrong woman, chooses the wrong woman, wrong ally, goes into battle, and he almost, <coughs> this is a great time for me to start coughing. He, could somebody grab me? Yeah, that's great. Thank you. I appreciate it. Uh, and he almost gets killed. How many of you guys were here last week? Let me see your hands, just so I know. Oh, the vast majority of you. Hey, thanks. How's this water taste? All right. I'm kidding you. Yeah, hey, it's, it's all right. Um, let's go back to Second Chronicles, all right? Second Chronicles 19. Because he goes into battle. He never should have gone into battle, but he goes into battle. And he goes into battle with Ahab, and Ahab talks him up, talks him into to dressing uh, as the king of, of Israel. Now, for some reason, he goes along with it, although Ahab was the king of Israel. But this other army, they're gunning for Ahab, who's the king of Israel. And, and they pretty much get Jehoshaphat sequestered, and they're going to take him out, and he calls out to God, and God delivers him. And then the scripture says back in 2 um, 
uh, Chronicles uh, 18, look at verse 33. And a certain man drew his bow at random. I love that. Thanks so much. A certain man drew his bow at random and struck the king of Israel. That's Ahab in a joint of armor. See, Ahab was doing everything he could do to defer uh, attention to Jehoshaphat. Uh, and what happens? Just randomly, this guy draws a bow. There is no randomly. There is no chance. There are no accidents. You read through Proverbs. Proverbs says that if you go to Vegas and you throw the dice, it's already been determined by the Lord how that dice is coming up. Did you know that? You cast a lot, Lord's already determined. You've heard me quote R.C. Sproul. Sproul says, in God's universe, there's not one maverick molecule. There's no chance. There are no accidents. There's no coincidence. God oversees it all. Uh, this guy drew, draw, you know, everything Ahab can do to defer, you know, difficulty coming into his life. This guy that was totally against God, at random, this guy, boom, goes right in the section of armor that, where he's vulnerable. You ever seen these suits of armor? These guys, how do they get around? How do you get on a horse? How do you move? But man, those guys were covered. And that one section where, where, where the, when you're going to sit on a horse so you're going to move, there has to be a little give right in here, in this section right here. There's a little give. The armor will give. Boom! Caught that sucker right there. That was it. Jehoshaphat realizes that God delivered him and he escaped with his life. I mean, it was a near-death experience. So what does he do? Look at chapter 19, verse 1. Then Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, returned in safety to his house in Jerusalem. Now, put yourself in this guy's position. I think he goes home and he realizes, man, did I ever screw up? And was God ever gracious to me? So what does he do? God delivers him. God spares him. He never should have been there in the first place. Have you ever been in a situation you never should have been in and God delivered you? You bet. Isn't God a good God? And do we learn lessons from that? If you're smart, you do. Jehoshaphat, you know what? Never should have been there, but I'll give the guy credit. He learned. And, and he goes home. Now, notice if you would what happens to this guy who got careless. When he gets, when he gets back home in verse 2, well, here, here's my first point, all right? We're picking it up from last week. First point, he goes home and gets confronted. That's it. Who confronts him? Well, if you've been here in our study, you know that every king, there's always a prophet. Always. Sometimes more than one. And what is, what is the job of the prophet? To tell the straight, unvarnished truth of God. Because every king needs someone in their lives to shoot straight with them. You know what? I need someone in my life who shoots straight with me. You need someone in your life who shoots straight with you. You can't live without those people. Um, we'd like to. But, but God is gracious in that he will give people to us in our lives who will walk through life with us and we look out for one another. It's always fascinated me about uh, David, that David did not sin with Bathsheba until way after Jonathan was killed. Those guys were pretty tight, weren't they? I don't see in the scripture 
that that relationship that David had with Jonathan was ever replaced. Those guys were tight. Those guys would die for each other. They'd go to war for each other. Do you have anybody in your life that will watch your back for you? Look out for you? They don't have any vested interest. They're just for you. They're just on your team. Man, that's a great gift if you've got that. That's the kind of person that we all need and that when and you know they're on your team and they know they love you and when they tell you the truth you got to listen to that i mean that's a gift to, to to not listen is to be is to be foolish because you see we all have blind spots we all have areas in our life where where we're, you know we think this is the you know the we think this is the best move we need someone to come along and say you know what that's not the right move you don't want to do that you want to go this way that's what the prophets would do for these kings. So this guy comes home from battle. He's just glad to be alive. And look what happens. This guy's name is Jehu, verse 2. And Jehu, the son of Hanani. Now, who's that? That's Hanani was the prophet who ministered to Jehoshaphat's father. It'd be better if these guys' names were Frank and Joe, wouldn't it? It'd just be a lot easier. Because, you know, you Jehoram and... Jehoshaphat, and anyway, <clears throat> I know you love sitting out there and watching me stumble on, the, on these. These are tough names. All right, you got Jehu. He's the prophet, and he's going to confront Jehoshaphat. Who's Jehu? The son of Hanani. Who's Hanani? The prophet who confronted Jehoshaphat's father, Asa. So you got two fathers here, and you got two sons. Kind of wild, isn't it? And his father, Hanani, had to confront Asa, and Asa didn't respond well. In fact, if you remember when we studied Asa, Asa got mad, Asa got defensive, and instead of listening, uh, he got hard in his heart. Now, he was another good, he was a good king. He did well the first three and a half quarters. Well, he did well the first two quarters and into the half of the third quarter. And then when Hanani confronted him, he started pulling away from the Lord. So now here's his son. Let's notice what happens here. Jehu, the seer, went out to meet him and said to King Jehoshaphat, Should you help the wicked and love those who hate the Lord and so bring wrath on yourself from the Lord? Who's he talking about? He's talking about Ahab. You know, what are you doing being up there with that yo-yo? That guy hates the Lord. He's against the Lord. Should you help him? You know what Jehoshaphat's problem was? He was too cotton-picking nice. Nice. I got a quote. John Eldridge. I like what John. This is his book, The Journey of Desire. Here's what John says. Christianity has come to the point where we believe that there is no higher aspiration for the human soul than to be nice. We are producing a generation of men and women whose greatest virtue is that they don't offend anyone. Then we wonder why there is not more passion for Christ. How can we hunger and thirst after righteousness if we have ceased hungering and thirsting altogether? As C.S. Lewis once said, we castrate the gelding and bid him to be fruitful. I love that. I mean, that's worth pondering. <laughs> uh, and then this one he says. 
The greatest enemy of holiness is not passion, it's apathy. Apathy. What's the primary attribute of God? What's the most important attribute of God? A lot of people think it's love. Yeah. Uh, and, and is God love? Sure he is. But see, the primary attribute of God is holiness. Isaiah 6. What did Isaiah say? In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and mighty lifted up. And the throne uh, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Talks about the amazing creatures that were around him. Six wings, two they covered their face, two they covered their feet, with two they flew. And 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 for eternity they cried out one to another, tolerant, tolerant, tolerant is the Lord God Almighty. That's not what they said. Nice, nice, nice is the Lord God Almighty. Loving, loving. Lo now, they could have said loving. They didn't. What did they say? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Um, if you, uh, I'm going to shoot straight with you guys. If you really have a, a passion for the holiness of God, uh, you can't be nice all the time. Because there's a point where you've got to draw some lines. Uh, now, you need God's wisdom where to draw those lines. But see, I think Eldridge is right. We have, we have gotten things so skewered in the evangelical church that the most important virtue that a man can ascribe to in his life is that he's a nice guy. The prophets weren't nice guys. They told the truth. They told the truth when it wasn't popular. They, hey, they confronted. You know what this guy did? You know what Jehu did? He loved this guy enough to confront him. To confront him that he was too nice. You say, you say what do you mean he was too nice? Well, my gosh, he was nice to Ahab. He had no business being nice and being tolerant and being accepting of Ahab because the God that Jehoshaphat served, this guy was completely against. Totally. Proverbs 24, 24. Great verse for Christians in this culture. Great verse. Um, we, you, know, you know, in the evangelical church, we've gotten too nice. And quite frankly, we've gotten too tolerant. Um, gosh, I got to kind of edit myself here tonight. Um, say, I'm going to try tonight to not be political, but you're going to walk out of here thinking that's exactly what I'm doing. Because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make some statements, but I think I can back them up biblically. Um, but they could be taken the wrong way. And some of you could walk out of here thinking, you know, that, that Ferrar is not a real nice guy. Uh, and if there's anything I want, it's, it's that I want you to think I'm nice. 
See, the other reason we want to be nice, why, why, why are we trying so hard in the evangelical church to be nice? Because we want people, we want their approval. And we want their acceptance. And we want to be all inclusive. And we want to love everybody. And we want, hey, let me tell you something. That's not what Jesus did. Jesus drew some lines. Look at Proverbs 24, 24. He who says to the wicked, you were righteous. Peoples will curse him. Nations will abhor him. But to those who rebuke the wicked will be delight, and a good blessing will come upon them. I did a thing last week on Ahab and Jezebel, and I talked about them, and I described them. And I mentioned that as I went through that description, a lot of people, a lot of people somehow get the idea that I'm talking about Bill and Hillary Clinton. They never think of any other couple except the Clintons. Uh, I remember I used that at Promise Keepers in Philadelphia several years ago. And the guy before me who got up to speak, this is really interesting. Uh, I'm back in that speaker's lounge, and I was getting some water, and they had the thing on TV back there. And as I walk by, and I'm watching the guy who's speaking just before I'm speaking, this guy gets up, uh, and, and as I got my water, I walked by, and I heard him say, we are never under any circumstances whatsoever to judge anybody else, ever. To judge anybody else is absolutely wrong and unbiblical, and it's a critical spirit. And I stood there and I wanted to hear what else he said because I thought he was wrong. In fact, the emphasis that I was going to give <laughs> was the exact opposite. And I thought, now this is going to get real interesting. So what am I going to do? What are you going to do? Well, what I did, I got up and I said what I thought biblically I was supposed to say. And I talked about the fact that I talked about the fact that we're living in a culture where we have to draw lines, and if we become like the world because we're so tolerant and because we're so accepting, then the church loses its holiness, and we lose our effectiveness, and we lose our bite because we're not becoming like Christ, we're becoming like the world. So we have to judge sin. Judgment is important. And some of you are saying, well, Jesus said judge not. Yeah, but read what else he said. Judge not, lest ye be judged. He said, by the standard you judge, so will you be judged. Jesus said, before you take the splinter that's out of your brother's eye, you take the two by four out of yours. Jesus didn't say, don't judge. He said, you're going to be judged by the standard by which you judge yourself. So before you go judging somebody else, make sure you judge yourself. Is that not what he said in context? Yes. Then you go to Galatians 6.1. It says, Brethren, if any of you are caught in any trespass, let those who are spiritual restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest you too be tempted. This is exactly what Jehu did to Jehoshaphat. He confronted him over his sin. Man, you're caught in sin. But I'm telling you, Jehu looked at his own life before he went and confronted his brother. In 1 Corinthians 5, Paul says, uh, there is something going on among you that even the pagans don't do. There's a man living with his father's mother. What does Paul say? He says, remove the wicked man from your midst. He doesn't say, make him a pastor, does he? He doesn't say, make him a bishop. He says, deal with the sucker. And then you go on and read 1 Corinthians 5, and what Paul says is, is that Paul says, what do I, if that turned to 1 Corinthians, let me show you this in 1 Corinthians 5. 
And see, I'm sure some people read this letter from Paul and they thought, you know, he's not real nice. Well, not in that situation he wasn't, because he was standing on a biblical principle. And in, in, um, you'll, you'll see this right here in 1 Corinthians 5. Uh, let's get it. Look at verse 1. It's reported that there's immorality among you, an immorality of such a kind that doesn't even exist among the Gentiles, that someone has his father's wife. And you have become arrogant, and I have not mourned instead, in order that the one who has done this deed might be removed from your midst. Um, look at verse 5. I've, de I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for counseling. That, that's not what it says. <laughs> I've decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh, that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, you need to put this guy out, let Satan work on him so that he'll get his attention and maybe he'll call out to the Lord like Jehoshaphat called back to the Lord when he was in wrong company. You see how this works? Verse 7. Clean out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened. For Christ our Passover has also been sacrificed. Look at verse 9. I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world, or with the covetous and swindlers, or with idolaters. For then you'd have to go out of the world. But actually, catch this now. I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. If he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, don't even eat with such a one. Catch this. For what do I have to do with judging outsiders? The answer is nothing. They're, they're outsiders. Do you not judge those who are within the church? You know what most churches would say? No. No. Why not? Because we're nice. And see, that's why that church is sick and cancerous and weak and completely ineffective. Because they don't have the guts to stand up for the word of God and apply it to the body. So, if you've got gangrene running up your leg, and you go to a doctor, and he says, man, you got a real problem there. But we're just going to love on you, and we're going to encourage you, and we're going to put you in a small group with other guys that got gangrene running up their legs. <laughs> and you know when you die, we're going to give you a real nice service. That's not what the guy says. The guy says, hey, listen, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to take your leg. And I know that's the last thing you want to do, do, and it's the last thing you want to hear, and it's going to change your whole life. But you know what? I'm going to cut your leg off so I can save your life. That's what Paul is saying to the church. Do we not judge those inside the church? Look at verse 13. But those who are outside, God judges, remove the wicked man from among yourselves. Now let me ask you this. If this guy had been repentant, would Paul have said that? No. Because the guy had a broken spirit. Somebody's repentant. Man, you bring them in, you love them, you accept them, you encourage them. This guy hadn't broken yet. This guy was still hard. You see? See, there's a place to confront. It was interesting. I did that talk at Promise Keepers, and I went on and did a few more verses. And about two weeks later, I was opening my mail, and I get a piece of mail from a guy. Here's his letter. I was at Philadelphia PK. I heard your talk. You're the most ungodly, unchristian, unfilled with the spirit, hateful, da-da-da, I've ever heard. I'll never come again. You should never speak. Yours in Christ. <laughs> I said, oh, well, okay. 
and there's a Nick's letter. Nick's letter. I opened it up. Dear Steve, I was a promise. I was a promise keeper in Philadelphia, and I was sitting there listening to the guy who got up to speak before you. Did. And I must tell you that I was grieved, and it was all I could do to stay in my chair. But when you got up and opened up the scriptures, I have to tell you, I was so grateful because the Spirit of God was at work, and Jesus was lifted, and da da da, and no no no. Isn't that amazing? I see, that had nothing to do with me, and you know that. It's all perception. You know, you know what the one guy, he, you know why he was mad at me? Because I, and, and I used Clinton as an example. And I said, Clinton's a member of a Baptist church in Little Rock, Arkansas, and I named the church. And I said, they should have thrown his tail out of that church a long time ago. And, uh, which they should have. Um. And, uh, and I just wrote him a note back, and I think I gave him Proverbs 24, 24. And I said, you better be real careful, man, because what you're saying to the wicked is that they're righteous. God will put a curse on you if you do that. And I just put a little note that says, I pity you. I really do. Because I did. The guy, was all, the guy was all messed up biblically. You see? He was embracing the wrong people. This guy that wrote me the letter, he would have gone up and joined with Ahab. That's not what you want to do. Now, let's go back to, where are we? Second what? Chronicles. You guys still there? Are you? Okay. Am I making any sense? Am I? Okay. All right. Did I already read the quote about being nice? Yeah, I did. Okay. I'm all screwed up here tonight. I'm different time zone or something. Yeah. I'm not nice. I'm, I'm, I'm getting... So what help? He goes home, and what does Jehu do? Jehu does him a favor and confronts him. He says, what are you doing hanging out with this guy? This, this, I mean, you, you've got... Look at verse 3. But there is some good in you, for you have removed the Asheroth from the land, that's the idol, and you have set your heart to seek God. You know what? This guy really did love the Lord. He knew it was right. And he really, and again, we said in Chronicles, Chronicles is always talking about seeking the Lord. This guy had a heart for God. He did a bunch of things right. He just got off course. Now, here's what happened. He got confronted, and you know what his dad did when his dad got confronted? His dad got hard. You know what this guy did? This guy confessed. He confessed. You know what else he did? He repented. He took the admonishment. What does the scripture say? Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Yeah. You need somebody in your life. I need somebody in my life who loves me, who loves me enough to hurt me to tell me what I don't want to hear in order to save my life. Uh, that's what Jehu did for this guy. And, and you know what's so great about Jehoshaphat? He took it. He didn't get defensive. He didn't say, hey, I'm the king. I'm this guy had been humbled by God. He almost lost his life, and it gave him a teachable spirit. And, and, and you know, this guy, hey, this guy is looking out for me. I need to listen to this guy. You are exactly right. Isn't it refreshing when someone is confronted and they're wrong and they just shake their head and say, you know what, you are absolutely right. Man, I couldn't be more wrong. That takes a man to do that. Never is a man so strong as when he admits he's wrong. That's why so few guys can do it. Because it takes unbelievable strength. You ever go down to these health clubs and see these guys bench pressing? I mean, they're bench pressing hummers on both, on, you know, on both sides. And they're just you know, walking around. 
because they're strong. I tell you something. You're strong if you can admit when you're wrong. And that's what Jehoshaphat did. He, he was confronted and he confessed. And see, that's the whole purpose of the confrontation. It wasn't just to get on the guy. It just wasn't, you know, to go uh, knock him around and make him feel bad. The whole point was to win him back. The whole point of biblical discipline is, is, is to redeem the person and to bring them back in the fold. Um, uh, go, go to James. Whip over to James real quick. Last chapter of James. Gosh. Look at verse 19, James 5. My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Isn't that amazing? You ever love a guy enough to go talk with him? To go confront him? Say, hey man, I, I just want to talk to you because I care about you. And I care about you enough that I'm coming to you to talk to you eye to eye. Eyeball to eyeball. I'm on your team. But, I, but you know what? I want to say something to you that's, that's tough. Uh, but I want you to know my heart. It's because I'm, I'm on your team and I love you and I care about you. And man, you're going down a wrong road. You know what? You're going to get hurt. You're going to get hurt real bad. And you're going to hurt your family. And, and you may even get mad at me. And you, you may say, hey, I'm not going to be your friend anymore. You know, I'm even willing to risk, to risk that. That's how much I care for it. And you know what? That guy just might listen. Boy, God loves that. When a, when a man will take the initiative in, in trying to save somebody. You see some guy drowning in a pool. Aren't you going to go in after the guy and try and pull him in? It's the same principle. You don't just walk by and say, oh, I hope that guy, yeah, I hope he makes it. You don't do that. You go in after the sucker and bring him back. You see, same principle in the spiritual realm. Jehoshaphat responds to the word of God. Uh, so, you know what he does in verse 4? He went home and was confronted. Then he goes home and he repents. Um, now, here's a question. Well, you say, well, how do you know he, he repented? Well, here's how we know. Because when you read the context, he went from being careless to being careful. See, when, when, when you're repentant, you get careless about your life and careless about your decisions and careless about sin. But when you repent and you get back on track with the Scriptures and with the Holy Spirit in your life, you're not careless, but you're extremely careful. What did God say to Joshua in Joshua 1? Be careful to do all that is written in this book. Don't depart from it either to the right nor to the left, but be careful. We get in trouble when we get careless. This guy was repentant because suddenly he goes from careless to careful. And then I want you to see what this guy does. Uh, he's careful in two ways, all right? Now, I'm going to just go ahead and tell you. I'm going to give you the second one first, okay? Because I'm not going to deal with the second one because I don't have time because we'd be here until 2 in the morning, and I'm already tired. So I'm not going to do that, all right? Let me give you the second one first. He was careful in the next battle. The next battle is in chapter 20. And you remember how his dad faced an army of a million men? He's going to face a huge army. Same deal. He calls out to God, and God miraculously delivers him. That's in chapter 20. I'm not going to deal with that. But he was careful. See, he screwed up in the first battle, didn't he? 
See, that's the great thing about God. You'll screw up in one situation, and you know what God will do as time goes by? He'll put you in. He was talking, he was talking about the fact that, uh, you know, he had married June Carter, and uh, God had given him a son. And I, I'll never forget this. He said, well, you know, the first time around, I, I really screwed up with my kids. And, and God's so gracious in giving me a chance with this boy to do it right. Isn't that good? You, I mean, it just came from his heart. You know, that was the most, he was going to be so careful with this boy because he'd been so careless the first time. You see? That's, and we can all relate to that, can't we? That's how God is so good in giving us another shot, you know? So he's going to be careful in that battle. That's chapter 20, but I don't want to go into that. I want you to notice, and this is really wild to me. See, Christianity is so practical. And it's so real. The Bible's the most relevant book in the world. Uh, it's the book. And, you know, the Bible's boring. And, you know, if you study it, it's not boring. See, what's the second? What's the second deal here that he was careful about? He was careful in appointing judges. I love that. Say, why do you love it? I just do. I just love it because it's right where we are as a nation. And you see, guys, these are all spiritual issues. All of them. You say, where is that found? Well, that's in First Chron uh, Second Chronicles 19, verses 5 through 11. William Penn. Remember William Penn, don't you? He founded uh, Ohio. A little joke there. They used to teach a class in public schools in America called History. Now they teach revisionist history. But if you took uh, history, you would know that William Penn founded the state of Pennsylvania. You see. Here's what William Penn said. He said, if we are not governed by God, we will be ruled by tyrants. See, he understood something. He understood the importance of law and the basis of law. Let's start reading verse 5 of 2 Chronicles 19. That, uh, now see, we've read about the screw-ups of this guy. See, he's back on track now. He's walking with God. And I'm going to tell you something. The rubber meets the road, and this guy starts stepping up to the plate to turn this nation to the Lord. I mean, he's thinking long-term. He's thinking strategically. Look at verse 5. And he appointed judges in the land, in all the fortified cities of Judah, city by city. And he said to the judges, catch this, consider what you were doing. For you do not judge for man, but for the Lord. You're standing for the Lord, and here's the other deal. You're standing before the Lord. One day you're going to give an account. What are we, on ship somewhere? Do you hear that thing? Do you hear that loud noise, that, that high-pitched noise? Your dog can hear it. I don't know if you can, but that's, that's quite a noise. Listen to this. Consider what you are doing, for you do not judge for man, but for the Lord, who is with you when you render judgment. Verse 7, now then let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Why would he say that? Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Well, you know, somewhere I read the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Somewhere I read in Proverbs that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. You see? Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
And I've said this before in here. What's wisdom? You know what wisdom is? It's common sense. Isn't common sense refreshing? You know, it used to be there was a lot of common sense in America. And when I was a kid, there was a lot of common sense in America. It was a compliment. You talk about somebody. Remember my dad talking about somebody he worked with or someone at church? It was a real compliment to say, you know, Joe, he's got a lot of common sense. What does that mean? You know what common sense is? It's just wisdom. Common sense is wisdom applied to everyday life. That, that guy's not out there. That guy's not radical. He's just got common sense. What's common sense? It's wisdom. It used to be that judges had common sense. Do you, do you ever read the paper and you get upset? You read about these court cases? You ever get your, your vein starts bulging a little bit? You just, you just can't believe it. Why? Well, I mean, what was that guy thinking? Because you, that, 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 that makes no sense. You're right. And why does it make no sense? You want to know why? Because that judge has no fear of the Lord. And if there's no fear of the Lord, then there's no wisdom and there's no common sense and there's no justice. That's where we are as a nation. I love this. I mean, look at what this guy's saying. To the judges. Now, wouldn't you like to round up some of these judges and sit these guys down? And saying, hey, you know what? Take those diplomas off the wall. Who, who, the, who do you think you are, hotshot? Sit down and listen to this. Let the fear of the Lord be upon you. Be very, what? Careful. What you do. For the Lord our God will have no part in unrighteousness, or partiality, or the taking of a bribe. Okay, I'm going off on a tantrum here for a few minutes. Right? I'm just telling you up front. But I'm going to feel better, and so are you. <laughs> this is just, it's just where we live, guys. Why are we so screwed up in this nation? What's happened to us? Uh, we were never perfect. But, and, and, and have there always been bad judges? Yeah. Have there always been crooked judges and crooked cops and crooked DAs? Yeah. I mean, as long as you've got Chicago, you've got the Cubs, and you've got Cook County, and they're playing around with ballot boxes. Everybody knows that. That's just a tradition. Uh, you had it in the South with segregation. You have it, you know, and we just, it's just the way it works. So are there always bad apples? Sure there are. You know, bad cops, bad judges, bad preachers. I was talking to a guy this week, and uh, we, were, we were talking about some stuff and, you know, doing some business. And, and he had said something. I said, so... I said, so you know the Lord? He, and he, he said, yeah, well, yeah. kind of hesitant. And he said, well, I'm not going to church right now. I said, well, you know the Lord? He's your Savior? And he said, well, yeah, I do. He said, I, but it's, you know, he said, we're in this church and there's a credibility issue with the pastor. And so we're in the middle looking around. And, and I said, yeah, that's always tough when that happens. That's unfortunate, you know. And a few minutes later, he said, he said, well, part of my problem is when I was a kid, my first job out of high school, I got a job working at a real high-end men's store. 
And I sold suits that went for three to $4,000. And he said, I had some preachers that came in and were my best customers. And I said, preachers? And he said, yeah. I said, so what's some preacher doing coming in there and paying 3000 bucks for a suit? And he said, well, that's not, that wasn't the issue for me. The issue was, instead of writing the name of the clothing store, they'd write the initials. And one guy even told me it's because he declared it on his Schedule C as a charitable deduction. A preacher. No wonder that guy had some issues. You see, he said, I'm a little tender when it comes to integrity. I said, well, you ought to be. I said, man, that's just, that's unbelievable. Now, there's a guy that preaches the Word of God that is not living out the Word of God. You see the impact that can have. Why? So, you got bad judges, bad cops. You got it all. All right. But generally speaking, God, for hundreds of years, blessed this nation. Uh, be, now, now, why has he blessed us? Just because we're real neat guys and because we deserve it? No. Why has there been so much given to us? I think it's because the foundation of this nation was based on the Word of God. The law system of this nation was based on the Word of God. We weren't perfect. We've got to say that up front. But generally speaking, this, our judicial system was not based on the Koran, was it? It wasn't based on the writings of Lao Tzu. Francis Schaeffer wrote a book... How many years ago? I want to say 79. Let me see when this thing was written. Um, uh, where's the copyright? 81. Do you guys know about Francis Schaeffer? You know who he was? Francis Schaeffer was a great Christian thinker. He was a pastor uh, in St. Louis, and then after World War II, his denomination sent him over to check out the condition of the churches and the needs over in Europe. So he went over saw how terrible things were, the orphans, kids running around without parents. He comes back, gives a report. We need to send somebody over there to set up ministries. They said, you're the guy, you go. He picks up, leaves a prosperous church, takes his wife, takes his four kids. They go over there, and the whole thing falls apart. And all that was supposed to happen, nothing happened. They cut off his support. They're, they're renting a flat in some little town in Switzerland. Nothing's going right. His daughter gets rheumatic fever. His son gets polio. I mean, he, he's so disappointed, and nothing's working for him, and he left this ministry. He's stuck in the Alps. It's so disappointing to him. You know what he does? He just starts walking the Alps and figuring out, why am I a Christian again? And he goes back and rethinks his faith from square one. Why am I a Christian? Is this stuff true? He does that for two and a half years, almost three years. That's all he's doing. He's not contributing. He has no ministry. He feels like he's wasting his life. He just walks and thinks. Isn't that something? Nobody knows this guy. He's, in his, he's almost 50 years old. He feels like he's absolutely wasting his life. And then they're waiting to hear if they're going to get their visas renewed. And if they don't, they've got to go back to the States. They've wasted seven or eight years. And they crammed in this little apartment. Her daughter goes off to school in, 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 in Geneva. And she calls and says, hey, Mom, can I bring two girls back with me uh, from this school? And one's from, I don't know, Germany, and one's from China. Can I just bring them? And, 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 and Mrs. Schaefer almost said no because the kids are sick and we don't. She said, okay, bring them. And when they got home that night, they started asking questions of Francis Schaefer about philosophy. And you see, they started asking him questions they didn't think there were any answers to. But he thought about those things for two and a half years. And he started giving them answers. And they had never heard anything like that. 
And they went back to school, and next week and called and said, can we bring these three girls who want to know about Christ? And then they started, and before you know it, God, kids from all over the college students from all over the world were coming to this little place that they called Labrie, which means the shelter. That's who Francis Schaeffer was. He was a Christian thinker. He's quite a guy, quite an amazing guy. Written some great books. In 81, he wrote a Christian manifesto because Schaefer would look out about 25 years and talk about where we were going as a nation. And he talked about the importance of law. And what we're dealing with today, Schaefer saw it 25 years ago and wrote about it. I remember going to a conference and hearing him talk about where we were going to go. You know what Schaefer said about America? Schaefer said he thought, and this was back when the moral majority and evangelicals are on the cover of Time magazine and we're cruising and everybody's saying how successful we are. You know what Schaefer said? He said, I think America will eventually wind up in a dictatorship. Really? He said, I'm not sure if it'll come from the right or the left. But I think what will happen is, is that America will break down internally, not from the outside. We won't be attacked. We'll break down from within because we've lost everything. We're just a shell of what we used to be. And what will happen is someone will rise to power and people will give up their rights if they can be promised two things. If someone can promise them affluence and personal peace, they'll give up their rights. That still puts a chill down my back because I think he's right. He talked about the law and what made America great, and then he talked about where we're going. Can I give you guys a few quotes? You okay with this? All right. He talks about the view of law that's God-centered, and then he talks about the other group in America that he calls the humanist. Okay? Let me get the right start. It was always good to start at the beginning. You guys ever heard of the Humanist Manifesto? Ever read about it? It was done in 1933 and 1973. The Humanist Society is made up of a relatively small group of people some of whom have been very influential, John Dewey, uh, Julian Huxley, B.F. Skinner. By way of contrast, the Christian, the humanist world views uh, include many thousands of adherents and today controls the consensus in society. Much of the media, much of what is taught in our schools, and much of the arbitrary law being produced by the very de various departments of government. That was in 81. Where are we today? Okay. Then he talks about the clash between the two cultures, between the scriptures and between humanists. Nowhere have the divergent results of the two total concepts of reality been more open to observation than in government and law. Fallen? All right. Then I'm popping over to page 27. He talks about where we get our law, where it came from. He says, the influence of the Judeo-Christian world can perhaps most be readily observed in Henri de Brockton's influence on British law. You ever heard of de Brockton? I hadn't either until I read this. But common law in Britain changed everything. If you read Churchill's volumes on the history of English-speaking people, he talks about the common law that developed, and it developed out of Christianity. This is wild stuff. Listen to this. This is what de Brockton said. And that he, the king ought to be under the law, appears clearly in the analogy of Jesus Christ. When you read the history of England, it's about kings. I'm getting ahead of myself. But there was a concept that the king was above the law. The king was dominant. Everything the king said went. You were just nobody. You, I mean, he could, he could take your life like that. Catch this. And that the king ought to be under the law instead of over the law appears clearly in the analogy of Jesus Christ, whose vice-regent on earth 
He is. The King is. For though many ways were open to Him for His redemption of the human race, the true mercy of God chose this most powerful way to destroy the devil's work, that he would not use the power of force, but the reason of justice. In other words, Schaefer says, God in his sheer power could have crushed Satan in his revolt by the use of that same power. But because of God's character, justice came before the use of power. He could have squashed Satan. But Jesus went to the cross, and by dying on the cross, he fulfilled all the requirements of the what? The law. He didn't use force, he used justice. So what he's saying is, if Jesus submitted himself, who is God, if he submitted himself to the law, why should not the earthly king submit himself to the law? You guys getting this? Pretty wild stuff, huh? This beats listening to sports radio. Because it's significant. I'm editing because uh, there's so much stuff here. Um, he says this, That base was God's written law, back through the New Testament to Moses' written law. And the content and authority of that written law is rooted back to him who is the final reality, meaning Jesus Christ. Thus, neither church nor state were equal to, let alone above the law. The base for law is not divided, and no one has the right to place anything, including king, state, or church, above the content of God's law. The law is everything. Everything is under God's law. Then he talks about the Reformation. And what the Reformation did was return to the fact that God's law was supreme. Um, he says the human is pushed for freedom, but having no Christian consensus to contain it, the freedom leads to chaos or to slavery under the state or under an elite. In other words, there's no democracy without the Bible. You take the Word of God away, and there won't be democracy in this country. John Adams said that, that our Constitution was made for a good and moral people. When you lose the goodness and you lose the morality, there is no Constitution. Why am I going like that? <laughs> I'd get on TBN if I'm going to do that. All right, but I'm not doing that. Do you see how I get worked up, though? Don't you guys get worked up on this stuff? Listen, he's going somewhere here. Uh, he talks about Samuel Rutherford. This guy, this guy was a stud. R Rutherford wrote a book. He lived from 1600 to 1661. He wrote a book called Lex Rex in 1644. Lex Rex means law is king. Prior to that, it was Rex Lex, king is law. He challenged that from the Word of God. He said Jesus was king. Jesus is God. If Jesus submitted to the law, the earthly king should submit to the law. Lex Rex. Law is king because law is God's law. You hear a lot about today about rights, human rights? Where do the rights come from, Schaefer says. They understood the Founding Fathers, that they were founding the country upon the concept that goes back into the Judeo-Christian thinking that there is someone there who gave the rights. A couple more. A couple quotes. Go back. He quotes Pennsylvania State Court. Uh, you might have heard this from David Barton. Uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court, they had a guy up on charges of blasphemy, 
The court said Christianity, general Christianity, is and always has been a part of the common law of Pennsylvania. The common law, which gave liberty and justice for all, was based in Christianity. It's really important to understand. Um, uh, Joseph Story, in his 1829 inaugural address as the Dane Professor of Law at Harvard, said, there never has been a period in which common law did not recognize Christianity as laying at its foundation. But things have changed, haven't they? Christianity is eradicated from our courts and from our judges. So now we're into a new phase, and Schaefer says on page 41, and now it is all gone. Now what do we have? Here's what he says. We live in a secularized society and in a secularized sociological law. By sociological law, we mean that law has no fixed base, but law in which a group of people decides what is sociologically good for society at the given moment and what they arbitrarily decide becomes law. That's where we are now. It started with Oliver Wendell Holmes, by the way. Uh, hold on. He's got another zinger here. Um, he talks about Joseph Fletcher. You guys remember Joseph Fletcher wrote a book called Situational Ethics. There's no right and wrong. It just depends on the situation. Uh, he talks about Fletcher. That is, a small group of people decide arbitrarily what, from their viewpoint, is for the good of society at that precise moment, and they make it law, binding the whole society by their personal arbitrary decisions. He calls this situational Sociological law. He saw this almost 25 years ago. Then he talks about the Supreme Court. He talks about the abortion decision in 73. He said the Supreme Court arbitrarily ruled that abortion was legal, and overnight they overthrew the state laws and forced onto American thinking not only that abortion was legal, but that it was ethical. And it's not. It was an elite group of people that came up with that and forced it on everybody else. Oh, by the way, you know what Schaefer did in his film series, How Shall We Then Live? This was back when abortion was a big deal. You know what Schaefer said? He said, you know the next thing that's coming? We're all sitting there taking up. The next thing that's coming is, uh, is euthanasia. We're going to kill people that are mentally retarded. We're going to kill people that are impaired. We're going to kill people that are too old, and there's going to be suicide made legal in this country, and we're all going, there's no way. Where are we today? You guys familiar with Terry Schiavo? You know who she is? I'll tell you about her in just a minute. See, most of you don't know because the media won't tell you the story because the media is part of the elite that doesn't want you to know what's going on. I had to be on talk radio. <laughs> I mean, they need somebody now, I understand. <laughs> and I shouldn't say that flippantly because that's, that's a serious thing. It really is. It's a, it's a tough deal. Um, you guys got room for one more? When I say that, I think I got two more. I just lost, hold on, let me, let me pop over here. Now, now, you see why Jehoshaphat, even though he screwed up, you see why God said he was a good man? Because what did he do? He didn't do this. He didn't do situational sociological law. In every town, he said, he put judges, and you be very careful that you operate out of the fear of the Lord because it's good for the people and it honors God. Um, he says this, Margaret Mead wrote in 1959 about the fact that scientists in our culture have been elevated to the status of priest. Did you get that? Good concept. Now there is a name for this elevation when you are in the hands of what one hopes is a benevolent elite. When you, are in, uh, when, when you have no control over your own political decisions. 
and, and the term for this is called slavery. If you're a slave in Mississippi, you better hope that you've got a good master. Because if you don't, your life's going to be pure hell. All right, Schaefer says this. Remember he talked about how an elite would rise and there'd be a dictatorship in this country. He wasn't sure if it'd come from the right to left. Catch this. I myself think we should not rule out the courts. He said this in 81, and especially the Supreme Court, as being such an elite for three reasons. Number one, they are already ruling on the basis of sociological arbitrary law. They're making it up as they go. Number two, they are making law as well as ruling on law. Constitutionally, is it the place of the courts to make law? No. no. Well, then why are they doing it? Because of reason number three, they dominate the two other parts of government. They rule on what the other two branches of government can and cannot do, and they usually go unchallenged. I've got to watch my time. So, give me a couple more minutes. I'm caffeinated. Okay? I took a shot. I, I had coffee with a shot. So I, 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 Hugh Hewitt. Now, here's where some of you guys could think that, oh, Farrar's getting political. No, I'm just making observations. And you see if this doesn't fit. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try and prove it to you. I, I don't have to, you know it's true. Hugh Hewitt is a Christian radio commentator in California. Great guy. He's written some great stuff. Hewitt did an article last week about uh, uh, the recall in California. He calls it Conan the, Conan the Barbarian at the Gates. And he's talking about all the stuff that's going on. And, you know, there's a fact, well, if he gets in, we're going to do a recall. Listen to this. And, this, and I, I'm safe here reading this, but I, I'm telling you, I'm not taking a stand for either group. I'm just telling you what he says. He says, we have reached a point in this country where Republicans rely on written rules and the judges who enforce them. Democrats rely on unwritten rules and the judges who invent them. Now, if you're a Democrat, don't, don't get mad. Because all I'm asking, I don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican. There are good Democrats, not many of them, but there's a few. <laughs> and there are good Republicans. Now, there are a lot of Republicans that are jerks. You know? They don't believe anything. They're social conservatives. That's worthless. No, 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 no. They're fiscal conservatives. Well, well, you're worthless if that's all you are. In other words, you don't have any conscience, and you don't have any standards, and you don't believe anything. See, all you're concerned about is your wallet and your net worth. So you won't take a stand on issues that are important to God. All you're compared, you, you know, you're just concerned about your Merrill Lynch account. If that's where you are, you know, your watch will break too. As mine just fell, and it does every week. But you guys getting this? Thanks a lot. Now, he's making an observation. And, and you say, well, how can you back that up? I mean, that, that's a very biased thing. Well, is it? Because he goes back and refers to what happened in the New Jersey Supreme Court. Anybody remember what happened in the New Jersey Supreme Court? When Torricelli got in trouble? There was a law. And I even looked it up on the internet. There was a law. Oh, by the way, Scalia opted out of a case today. Did you know that? He, he opted out. They're going to decide if in God we trust can be in the Pledge of Allegiance. You know what he did? He recused himself. Because he gave a speech to the Knights of Columbus, and he said it should be in the Constitution, and he criticized it. And the guy who's suing said, well, you ought to recuse yourself. And you know what the guy did? He did it. And, and that's what I did. I'm, he did what? Because we needed to keep that in there. He better vote. 
Yeah, but he's got too much integrity. So he's even willing, you see, that's integrity. And the guy that is suing basically said, I was amazed. Uh, I think that was an amazingly courageous and upstanding thing for him to have done. I'd say. I'd say. That's integrity. Um, where's my stuff? No, wait a minute. I got another one. Maybe that is it. Chuck never does this, does he? He's always just got it right. I'm missing one, guys. Hold on. Republicans, I said that. I'm missing one. All right, anyway, I'm not going to get this exactly right. But Torricelli was running against this Republican. The poll showed he wasn't going to win. So, so he's going to step out. But the law in New Jersey said that you couldn't change candidates before 55 or 53 days out. So they file a suit 31 or 33 days out. If I had my article, I'd give you the exact term. The law clearly states 50-some days. It was 31 days out. The New Jersey Supreme Court made law and said it's okay. You see? They invented law in order to get their agenda taken care of. You say, well, that's, one except, that's just one time, really. So what happened in Florida with the hanging chats? And have you ever heard that well, he stole the election? Did he really? Because you see, if you read the electoral laws in this nation, it's not based on popular vote, it's based on the votes in the what? Electoral college. The electoral college votes came out. Did he steal it? No. So when all this stuff started happening in Florida, the, the, the Florida Supreme Court started making law, and there was a woman in Florida who got vilified and attacked, and she was smeared. What was her name? Catherine Harris. She wouldn't move and she wouldn't budge because she'd been elected and her job was to uphold the law of Florida and they hated her guts for it. Oh, by the way, you know when she was a young girl out of college and came to know Christ, you know where she went to study? At Labrie in Switzerland under Francis Schaeffer. God's always got his people. And see, some of you may think, oh, she's no good. Go check it out. Go read the law. See, she knew about Lex Rex and Rex Lex in the sovereignty of God over her life, and God put her in that position, and she wouldn't budge because she stood on the Word of God. Isn't that wild? So who's Terry Shieva? Uh, well, she's a gal that, uh, once again in Florida, some court just pulled the plug on her. They're not feeding her through a tube. Uh, this is from Family Research Council. Time's running out for Terry Shiavo the disabled Florida woman whose feeding tube has been ordered removed by courts at both state and federal label, level. Terry's husband, Michael, has petitioned the court to allow his wife to starve to death, saying she's in a vegetative state, which she isn't. I read in the paper today, or in, uh, online, that she's in a coma. She's not in a coma. There's a videotape her parents have made which shows her alive, and when her folks walk in, she, you can just see her, like, she just opens up. Because she, know she knows they love her. She can't talk but her face just brightens up. She's not in a coma. Her husband, who, by the way, will get all that insurance money if she dies, along with his girlfriend, says she's in a vegetative state and that Terry would not have wanted extraordinary measures to save her life. Yeah, well, what, are you, what would you want, pal? They go on and say, there's nothing extraordinary about offering food and water to a disabled person. What's extraordinary is allowing a woman who is not on life support and who is not on a respirator to starve to death merely because she lacks the ability to feed herself. 
And I, I better have this other one. Listen to this. Here's what this judge ruled in, in her case. Um, uh, we're talking about a woman who is not terminally ill, who's not hooked up to machines, who's going to live a normal lifespan unless her food and water is taken away. Uh, Smith interviewed neurologists and others for this landmark euthanasia book, Forced Exit, and said that Terry will die, and they pulled the plug on her today on food and water. Terry will die a painful, terrible death. People go into seizures, their lips crack, they can vomit, the hands model and tur turn cold because all the water goes in towards the heart. It'll take, uh, uh, it'll take 10 to 14 days for her to die as they starve her to death in this hospital. Would you believe that in 1981? But it's true today. And there are other cases, but we don't ever hear about them because the media doesn't want us to hear about them. Now, did Jehoshaphat screw up in certain areas of his life? Yeah. Have you screwed up? Yeah. Have I screwed up? Yeah. I told you about the book I want to write. You're screwed up, I'm screwed up. <laughs> We're all screwed up. As opposed to the book 20 years ago, I'm okay, you're okay. We're all screwed up. That's why we need Christ. Uh, Jehoshaphat didn't everything, do everything right, but I'm going to tell you something. He screwed up, he got confronted, and you know what he did that God honored him for? He honored the Word of God, and he honored the law of God. Now, we can go all night talking about these federal judges and all this stuff, and, you know, hey, and I don't care if you're a Democrat or a Republican. I don't care what you are. Here's my question to you. Uh, how important is the Word of God in your life? Um, when Clinton was in the White House, I used to say, my biggest problem is not the guy in the White House. My biggest problem is the guy in the Blue House, and that's me. I'm my biggest problem. You are your biggest problem. Um, I feel sometimes, guys, on the study of these kings, I'm a broken record. But the message is the same. God's looking for men that will walk with him and trust him and obey his word. And when we screw up, we go to him immediately and get it straight and confess it. Jehoshaphat was a, was a godly king who did some, he strayed, he got messed up. But God honored him, and God will honor you. In a day of lawlessness, let's be men that uphold uh, the truth of God. And let's live it out. Um, you know what, your wife will love you for it. And your kids will respect you and admire you. And God's favor will be on your life. So Lord, we pray. We thank you for Jehoshaphat. Just a guy. Just a guy. Uh, Lord, uh, Israel had broken down just as we've broken down. There were unbelievable things happening. Wretched, evil, wicked things happening in that nation. In that northern kingdom. He never should have aligned with them. But Lord, when you got his attention, he started building on your word. Lord, we're living in a day of unbelievable wickedness. I remember, Lord, reading that in 1959. And I just thought of this. Back in 1959, Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a sermon in England. And he made the statement, he said, We are living in days of exceptional evil. 
he would not believe where we are today. Most of us would cut off our right arm to go back to 59. Lord, uh, we have no hope other than you. Our world is decaying and falling apart. As Chuck's been going through Revelation, we're seeing, Lord, that you're in total control. You're working your plan. Jesus will rule and reign. As, uh, as our culture and our nation deteriorates, may you make our homes and our church strong as we build our lives on the Word of God. Lord, where we've been careless, make us careful. Just as Jehoshaphat responded. Thank you for your mercy and your grace and your forgiveness. And Lord, I want to say, our hope is not in any political party. Uh, Most of us here are Republicans, but we make a big mistake to put our hope in any party. Our hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ, period. Period. We ask that his name would be exalted. We don't hold men up. We hold Jesus up. And we submit and bow before him tonight. In his great name we pray.